The following is an encore presentation from the Veritas Vault. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Mary Tass. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring a disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. First, I want to welcome and thank our new Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. And now, get ready to experience Project Pegasus by one of its members, the discovery of life on Mars, teleportation, time travel, and much more. According to our guest, what you are about to hear is not science fiction. Andrew Bashago is coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.
This is Bob Dean, and you've been listening to The Veritas Show. Andrew D. Bashago is an American trial lawyer, writer, and environmental scholar. Andy was one of the whiz kids who served from 1969 to 1972 in DARPA's Time Space Exploration Program, Project Pegasus. A past member of Mensa, the High IQ Society, he holds five degrees, including a bachelor's in history from the University of California, Los Angeles, and a master of philosophy from the University of Cambridge. While an undergraduate at UCLA, Andy became a journalist and a protege of editor Norman Cousins of the Saturday Review, who once compared him to Robert Hutchins and nominated him to be the editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. He was inspired by a meeting with architect Buckminster Fuller in 1981 to pursue a career in environmental policy. After their meeting, Fuller wrote, quote, Andrew Bashago's integrity augurs well for humanity's continuance in the universe, unquote. Andy founded the Mars Anomaly Research Society, Mars, in 2008, after discovering abundant evidence of life in a photograph of the red planet beamed back to Earth by NASA's Mars Exploration Rover Spirit. His discovery of life on Mars might be an epochal event in human history. His crusade to evaluate and prove his findings and bring them to public light has been called heroic. About his discovery, Andy stated, quote, NASA and JPL photograph PIA 10214 is going to spark a second Copernican revolution on our planet, and it was my cosmic privilege to discover that it contained evidence of life on Mars. Society will be transformed, I think, for the better, by the revelation of the fact that we are not alone in the universe, indeed, that we are not even alone in our own solar system. Unquote. And directly from Vancouver, Washington, our special guest, Andrew D. Bashago. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Good, Mel. Good to be with you today. And may I call you Andy? Sure, I, I prefer that. Please do. Well, let me just start by saying this. Earlier this year, I was listening to Alfred Weber's Exopolitics radio show, and I was listening to this show in particular, and I heard you for the first time. And I told this to Alfred uh, the moment I heard it, and when I brought him to the show, I told him that my jaw is still on the floor because I, I could not believe my conventional wisdom said this this, is, this can be true. But having somebody like you with so many degrees and, and the eloquence in which you you recount the, the the facts, I had to have you on the show. So I'm so glad that you're here today. I've heard some of your presentations, and I hope that within the next two hours we can relay and convey this information to the world because it is so important. So what I'd like to do is divide the show into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the hidden history of the discovery of life on Mars. And then on the second hour, we're going to get to the nitty-gritty. But why don't I let you start just to introduce introduce yourself first. Thank you, Mel. Um, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Um, I'm uh, a lawyer here in Washington State, and I, I grew up in, in New Jersey, having been born there in 1961. And um, in our earliest childhood, I was brought into classified defense-related research and development activities uh, under what was then ARPA, the uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency, which would become DARPA the Defense Advanced Research Projects, Projects Agency. That's the agency that brought us the Internet. Right. But in fact, 40 years ago, 
they were already developing technologies far more sophisticated than they've publicized. In fact, by 1967-68, the U.S. government secretly, under DARPA, and this is the significance really of, 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 of my, my story, of my account, had achieved what I'm calling quantum access. Now, quantum access spans everything from using very gifted psychics to see things at a distance in space in real time all the way to physical time travel of human beings to, to, to past and future events. And I was one of the, chi- the child participants in Project Pegasus, which was the project undertaken under the aegis of DARPA in the late 1960s and early 1970s in which quantum access was achieved. Essentially, what I'm sharing is an insider's account of the hidden history of the real Philadelphia experiment, the the actual time-space exploration program under the Department of Defense, for which the later uh, cover stories about time travel were scripted. And so um, uh, I was brought into those activities at a very young age, and my research recently has really followed two tracks. On the natural history track, I am studying photographs of NASA and the ESA and I've essentially proven that Mars is an inhabited planet. In fact, back in 2008, um, I published a paper entitled The Discovery of Life on Mars, and I showed that. And I've published about 40, 40 or 50 research papers since then, short monographs establishing um, that finding. Now, it's related to my, my activities as a child in, in Project Pegasus because that may very well have formed the reason that I was brought into Pegasus as a child, because we've now established seven data points in my childhood and young adulthood in which my future discovery of life on Mars, uh, I was apprised of that by the government as a result of it having prior knowledge of that discovery. And so I've been trying to relate those two research tracks, one in the realm of natural history, demonstrating based on photographic evidence that Mars is an inhabited planet, uh, which in itself is a significant development that I think is going to be very impacting in, in, the, in the 21st century. But also I'm trying to relate that discovery to my experiences in Project Pegasus as one of America's early time-space explorers. I was the first American child to teleport, and it was in that context that my destiny as somebody principally associated with the discovery of life on Mars was revealed to me. So um, in the first hour, I thought we might explore the incidents in my childhood in which the later Mars finding were revealed to me. And, and this will give a kind of a view, uh, a set of vignettes that were about how the people associated with Pegasus were dealing with information they knew uh, from the future. And they knew that information from, as I said, everything from using advanced psychics to um, they had developed devices that were modeling holograms of past and future events by 1970. And by 1971-72, they were sending people to the past and and future via uh, teleportation devices. And um, I was involved in those those activities myself directly. Um, And so that that track is sort of more from the realm of deep politics, where as a whistleblower, I'm revealing what Project Pegasus achieved. Because, you know, in the 21st century, we're going to have to address the crisis of environment and development that we find ourselves in. And I think teleportation, um, you know, adopting teleportation globally is going to be one of the key things that we're going to do to, to, uh, to save our planetary civilization. 
So um, absolutely, those are those are the two tracks that I find myself on right now. They're kind of converging right now. I'm releasing a lot of um, new findings about what's on Mars, but I've also decided to come forward and discuss what uh, my experiences in Project Pegasus because some remarkable things were achieved by the U.S. government, and now 40 years later, I think it's time that the people of the United States and indeed the people of the world learn what those developments were and how they've been used for the last four decades. Can I interject for one second, Andy? I, I hear, and I talk to a lot of guests every week, and we hear that disclosure is happening. It's not happening as the disclosure many people want a president or, or a major political figure to come out and say that we have been interacting with an extraterrestrial race for, for years, etc. But disclosure is happening. And what we're experiencing tonight, here tonight on the very test show, folks, is disclosure. Now, the question is, a lot of whistleblowers have been subverted or destroyed. I want to know, how is it that you're coming forward unscathed? Well, in fact, when I was investigating my, my um, experiences in Project Pegasus, um, I had a meeting in June of 2003. I can tell you where it was held. It was held at the parking lot at the Wolf Creek Pass Ski Lodge uh, near Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Uh, obviously, it was June there in Colorado, so nobody was skiing. Right. And it was in that location during my first fact-finding trip to New Mexico in regard to my childhood experiences in Project Pegasus that I met with a representative of the executive office of the president. This would be during the first Bush administration. And I was told the following. I was told basically the memories that I had of being involved in time travel research undertaken by DARPA were valid, that the project involved the research and development into time travel technologies, that I was in the program, I was known by the government as having been one of the child participants, and that these technologies remained sensitive, compartmentalized national security secrets, and therefore that if I did not stop researching, talking about, and writing about my experiences in childhood in Project Pegasus, they, quote-unquote, could not guarantee my survival. Now, I don't know if that was a threat to shut up. I took it as such. I think they may have been saying I may have been eliminated by some other faction, and they were just warning me in light of the fact that I had served in the project in childhood and was simply researching what happened to me with a, with a view to writing a book about, you know, a memoir about my experiences in the project. So, in fact, as a whistleblower, as, you know, as a, a, a lawyer educated at UCLA in Cambridge, somebody who had a background as, 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 as an investigative journalist, uh, I was actively investigating and had been for a number of years at that point my experiences in Project Pegasus, and it was as a result of that meeting that I was told basically to knock it off. Um, so I, I basically told them that I would and then continued my investigation because I believe that I have a right to tell what I experienced in the project, and I think this information now needs to come out to advantage humanity. So I decided at that point to move forward secretly and continue my investigation, even if it cost me my life. And I have had incidents of apparent infiltration of my activities and disruption of them. So this hasn't been an easy road. Now, recently, I had, a, I had an uh, event happen as an attorney where a client approached me for legal representation, and it was in that context in which that person was used to pass a message along to me from the NSA 
or at, well, the intelligence community, this person was attached to NSA, that they were going to, quote-unquote, let me go forward and tell what I know. So at this point, my understanding is that the government was becoming concerned about my investigation back around 2003 and 2004. But in the last five years, after I began speaking publicly, and I've been telling the true history of what happened, rather than using the account for ideological purposes, not related to the history of what happened, that apparently there's been a decision inside the intelligence community to let me go forward unimpeded now as a whistleblower. Um, so it's not a simple formulation of just being allowed to talk about it. I, I, in fact, was admonished to maintain Project Secrecy by the Bush White House back in 2003. This is just a, it's, it is such an incredible story, and you speak with such eloquence that it, it, it sounds as the best science fiction book anybody could read. But let's go back to Hollywood for one second. They mix science fiction with reality and make us believe that it's all science fiction. But why don't we go back, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in 1971, your father showed you the paper you wrote in 2008. Let me repeat that again so that our listeners can understand. In 1971... Andrew Bashago's father showed him the paper he would write in 2008, The Discovery of Life on Mars. It was accessed via time travel. Sometime after you wrote in 2008, the first paper to prove that Mars is inhabited an inhabited planet. Please explain. Well, actually, yeah, there, there were several data points in my, my, my childhood in which I was apprised of, of these future developments because the intelligence community viewed them as critical to occur. And so because they were in possession of information about future events, they were acting in real time to increase the likelihood that certain future events that they wanted to see occur would occur. But they had decided in the project not to play God and, and stop events. Because, for example, one of the paradoxes of that is that if you stop a big event, you alter the future after that event and you diminish the quality of the intelligence database that you're gathering via these quantum access methods. Okay, So there were actually a number of of incidents in early childhood in which my father showed me the future Mars material. And it wasn't material they had prepared. It was material that included pictures that would later be gathered on Mars in the 2010s. So it couldn't have been fabricated by the government. So let me just describe what those were. But first let me describe my father. My father was at this time employed as an engineer for Parsons Jordan, which was a subsidiary of the Ralph M. Parsons Company, which is one of the world's leading process engineering companies, now known as Parsons Corporation. And they had a single contract, Parsons Jordan did. It was a copper contract for Anaconda in Chile. And my research has showed that that, in fact, was being used as a cover for Project Pegasus. In fact, Ralph Parsons would buy Adnan Khashoggi's uh, yacht, the largest private yacht in the world at that time in 1972, and name it Pegasus II for the very project that made Ralph Parsons so famously wealthy, which was this interesting. Which yeah, which was that's right on the Parsons website. I, I, I found that that anecdote about his yacht, and and that um, that undoubtedly resulted from having achieved time travel for the Defense Department. So let me go back and and describe um, my my dad and 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 some of these incidents in childhood where it was clear that they were already in possession of my paper about Mars that I would publish in 2008. He had worked um, on a number of sensitive aerospace projects. For example, he designed the alloy that the ramjet engine would be built uh, out of so that it wouldn't melt at, at high 
velocities in our atmosphere and, and near-Earth environment. Okay, so we've been on the Ramjet Project. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.